The station that brings you a howling good time. Howling Dog Radio. Lock it on and crank it up. John by Chris McKay and the Critical Darlings, and I am very pleased to be joined right now 
by Mr. Chris McKay himself. Thank you for having me. Uh, I've been listening to a lot of your music lately, and I wanted to uh, see if I could get you on air just for an interview, and I appreciate you taking the time to join me. I've done a little research on you, but I can't say that I know Uh-oh. too much. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to just ask you just some basic questions, and we'll play some of your songs, some old songs, some new songs, any songs of your choosing. Uh, maybe one or two oh, of mine, wow. if that's okay. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. That uh, makes it easier on me. All right. Uh, so, first of all, I know you're from South Carolina, Camden, South yep. Carolina. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. Okay. I lived in uh, Camden County, New Jersey, which I'm guessing is much different than Camden, South Carolina. So, uh, uh, tell me I a little bit about so, Camden. Yeah. Uh, well, Camden itself is a really artsy town um, in the middle of, well, not artsy state. uh it's a historic town uh and a lot of people it's it's a weird situation where there are a lot of really poor people and a lot of really wealthy people okay so it's a strange dynamic and mix where this part of the town is society Mm -hmm. of sorts and the other side is not so you're talking about the haves and the have-nots and basically exactly basically and, very and little, i was very little, i was closer to the have-not most yeah. of the time very little middle ground there very little mm. uh i think i drifted in between but mm. my home base was more on the have-not side mm-hmm. on the other side of the river yes the watery river <laughs> that's the name of the river now, you, believe you, it or not it's an indian name do you still have roots in the area like oh a, yeah, my family lives there. Uh, what's what's left of them? Mm-hmm. Um, most of my best friends are still there because I tend to hold on to them, um, which I guess is a good thing. But sometimes it can be weird. Uh, I don't get to go back as much as I did. But does anybody get to go anywhere? Yeah, or do nobody's anything? really going anywhere right now. So you're exactly. far from alone. Uh, right. But uh, now, as far as music, like, how did you really first, do you, if you can recall, uh, how did you first discover music and how much of a passion you were going to have for it? Was anybody in your family a musician? Or? Yeah, it's it's the thing where my family, it was omnipresence, really. Um, my grandmother, in specific, was a Southern gospel musician, and there were always instruments around, and the family would get together and sing gospel songs. I saw the light and, you know, all yeah. the... Southern gospel classic stuff. And so, no kidding, literally some of my very first memories are, are me trying to play the guitar that seems like a giant comical guitar, but it was a normal size one. <laughs> and not having any idea what I was doing. And over time, she taught me some of the basics. My father, who wanted to be a musician desperately, but <clears throat> there was no chance of that, hmm. uh, taught me some bar chords. and. Uh, me being me, I couldn't really be taught, so I had to go out and make it up as I went along, and eventually something stuck. I can relate to the father wanted to be a musician, but wasn't. Mine was the same way. Mine bought a, uh, 1975, he bought a brand new Martin D28 guitar, and that caused some wow. troubles in my household, because we weren't, we weren't the haves either, let's say. And uh, he couldn't play a note, he couldn't play a chord, but he had this vision of he was going to play Gordon Lightfoot songs and Johnny Cash wow, songs, yeah. and just... For various reasons, it never came to be. So I can, when you said that, that that struck a chord with me. No pun intended on oh, that. Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yes, mm-hmm. but fortunately, my dad, my my dad found softball, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, 
into that world when he wasn't working. And a guitar may be a poor substitute for a softball, but a softball may be a worse substitute mm-hmm. for a guitar. So I guess that depends on your perspective. Now, I mean, I've just been doing some research on you. Uh, I noticed that you had, I saw some of your old photos from your teenage days and you were playing in bands probably pretty, pretty darn early. You know, I'd say I saw some that were definitely high school era. Let's say. Oh yeah. I, the first real band, I guess I was, uh, barely 16. I was in mm-hmm. bands in my head for years before that. Yeah. And writing songs from the time, poorly from the time I was able to write. But, um, the first real quote unquote band was called Indecent Exposure once they made us change our name. <laughs> um, and played the talent show and somehow won the damn thing, even though we were horrific. <laughs> so that was the start. And from there, it's kind of hard once you have, once you see the whole gymnasium Full of the people who treated, you, you know, you were, you know how cliques are in high school. Oh, sure. And again, I kind of moved in between, but that was the first time that I saw everybody all of a sudden responding positively to not just me, but the other people who could have been more outcast in the band and clapping and singing and jumping and, and it was to an original. So we were seen very differently after that. That's the thing with original music is that uh, if you play something, and I've experienced just you know an infinitesimal amount compared to yours on that. But when you play something that you could say, you know, I wrote this in my living room, and people right. are are just enjoying themselves to it and really responding to it, it's just that's just a, just such an amazing feeling. It's it's an otherworldly yeah. feeling. It actually it it to this day freaks me out. There was a song I wrote. A little while back, and I released it. My mother died last year, and there were a lot of other people that were losing family members that were close to me. And I wrote this acoustic song. It was very simple, and I posted it. And several people seemed to like it enough that they actually sent me clips of them singing it, which has never happened. Hmm. And it was just kind of emotionally overwhelming to me, thinking of where that song came from and that it immediately impacted a few people that thought enough of it that they would send me acapella recordings of them singing this little song. Yeah, that that was weird, if you can't tell. I'm usually more able to communicate, but when I'm in this mode and remembering that, I get more self-destructed. Oh, okay. Because that was overwhelming. It was very strange. So, And then you, you eventually settled into Athens, where you are to this day. How old were you when you moved to Athens? I began visiting here in 1987 because my wife was going to school here, although she was not my wife at the time. Um, so I started spending time here then. Um, we, we were in Auburn, Alabama, <clears throat> starting in about 1992. That's where we moved in together and got married the year after that. Auburn, Alabama ain't for me. I'll put it that way. I gotcha. She had a good job there and everything, but there was no life for me there, man. There was no anything. Um, nice enough people, but after we were at a show, it was probably a Lollapalooza or something, and Atlanta, which was the midway point, and I remember seeing a t-shirt that said, Athens, Georgia, because it's everything that Auburn isn't. <laughs> and wow. between that and the fact that we both knew and loved Athens already, um, she was like, we need to just go, even though she had a good job. So we moved here and for years scraped to survive 
doing anything that we could, but it became home very slowly. And now I've lived here longer than I've lived any, anywhere else. And I'm just starting to feel like I'm, like this is really home. Really? Oh yeah. Uh, a, a few years back, um, and in specific, there was a specific moment actually. Um, Valina Vigo runs the 40 watt, or she was the booker, I guess. And she's well into the scene and always has been. And all of her friends, uh, you know, the, the co, the co, the owner used to be married to Peter Buck and they're all part of the scene. And I always felt like I was outside of it hmm. and like an interloper that had come in. And there was one night, I think Dallas Austin, the producer was doing a rare music show and I was covering it. He had hired me and outside he introduced, she introduced me as, you know, part of the family. And that's the way she put it. And it really struck me. And then a second time with the same thing was Robin Hitchcock was there. Oh, wow. And for some reason, I was supposed to be photographing and Robin's people were like, no, no, pho- no photographers just came up to me. And I was like, well, I'm cleared. And he said, yes, but Robin's decided no photographers under you. So, okay. I respect that. I respect that. My friend had driven in from North Carolina to shoot, and he was like, but but I came all the way in. Robin says no photographers. Valina sees this and comes up and says, he's with me. And she immediately is like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Whatever you want to do is fine. Come backstage. Do anything you need. And I heard her say that phrase again. She said, that's Chris. He's been a part of the family for a long time. Part and of the, the family, for a yeah. long time was the addition. And I was like, I guess I, I guess this is home. He's part of the family. I like that. Yeah. To be a part of a scene that's like that, so historically important to music, mm-hmm. even tangentially is a big deal to somebody Absolutely. that is so into music history. Absolutely. What was I saying? Well, I was going to ask you about, so you, so you and your wife moved to Athens. Yes. And uh, so then you, you were doing your, your, you're already, are you already considering yourself a professional musician at that point? Did you, were you doing uh, solo shows? professional mean money? Uh, okay, yeah, let's, okay, I, I wasn't, I didn't really think of it that way, but yeah, let's, for yeah. purposes of our discussion, yes, were you getting paid? <laughs> uh, not enough to count as being paid. I was playing, I had a band, um, called Q-Sign, terrible name, but we were named one of the best unsigned bands in America by Musician Magazine, didn't mean a damn thing, um, but it was nice, it looked good in a press kit, um, and we made a solid record, we tried to do that for a few years, couldn't keep it together. And that's basically when I got to the point where I was between bands. We broke that up. It's like, I worked on this for years. I need to find something else. Mm. Couldn't afford concerts anymore, which I loved. So that's when I went to Flagpole. And um, Ballard Leeseman took that chance on me. He was like, just go to sh- go to a show. Um, write something. Turn it in. If it doesn't suck, we'll run it. And me being me, I had a choice. I was like, the first Friday night, I'm going. This was a couple of days later. Alex Chilton was playing in, at Athens, and uh, Rick Springfield was playing in Atlanta. Hmm. And I thought it would be funny if I wrote a Rick Springfield review for my first review for Flagpole Magazine. So I wrote the review, and Ballard thought that was hysterical. Hmm. And it turns out he was a closet Rick Springfield fan when he was young as a drummer. Mm-hmm. And he was like, I'm running the piece. And from there, I was like, hey, can you do this? Can you do that? And then he said... Would you think about taking pictures so we can have some original? It was his idea. Mm. And I was like, wait, you mean I can get a photo pass and get even closer and possibly sometimes go backstage? Hell yeah, let's try this. (laughs) Who's going to say no to that? Absolutely. 
And then another person met me later, my first, when I got my first digital camera, uh, Atlanta was very competitive with photographers and with, with, with events at this time. And I was shooting Billy Idol, I think, uh, at the tabernacle. And this big scary guy that I thought was a road manager came up to me. I was alone. I didn't know anybody. He walked up to me and pointed his finger on my face, big scary guy and said, all right, this is what's going to happen. You see all the other photographers? I don't like any of them. <laughs> you look like you're a cool guy, so I'm going to stand here and we're going to look like we're talking so nobody bothers me. Do you understand? Okay. And I kind of started laughing. And we had a conversation until the lights went down. And then after that, it turned out this guy was a big deal. And he started saying, well, I'm putting together a photo team. You're on it. He didn't ask. I was like, I'm not qualified. He was like, anything you don't need to know, I'll show you. Hmm. And, at that and then I wound up syndicated. And then at that, well, at that point when he's saying this, you probably kicked, it probably kicked in that, hmm, maybe I should just shut up and let this guy do this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And he's, you know, he's, he's retired now, but he was in the business for 40 years and um, took a lot of iconic shots that I knew <laughs> growing up and hadn't known at the time. And of course, you know, I, I'd like to say that we're friends now, but I don't want to speak for him because he will use that voice on me again. Understood. <laughs> so now, uh, but as far as music in Athens, uh, was Critical Darlings, was that your first really big musical project in Athens? Uh, or- Q-Sign was probably the first real one. Critical okay. Darlings, I don't know how big it was. The funny thing about the Critical Darlings is it seems to be remembered as bigger than it was. Okay. Um, we got more attention outside of Athens and we got more attention in towns that we would have never hit. We got airplay in New Zealand and Australia and Poland. And we would be lucky if we had 10 or 15 people come to see us in Athens. Cause that's the first I'd ever heard of you. I mean, this is going back to the mid two thousands. I, that's how I first saw your name. And I, where would lo- you have seen it? For, well, I was okay. I was, uh, with the Hound Dog radio station. Back in from 2005 to 2010, 2010. This is back in the MySpace days. I would scope right. out just local, any from, from anywhere in Georgia. I would look, but obviously Athens has such a huge concentration of original yeah. bands, or at least it did back then. I assume that's still the case. And I found a quite a few that I thought were really good. And I remember seeing your name. And the Critical cool. Darlings, but I can't find any of the recordings from back then, because I don't know if I ever had any, or if I just saw the name and I wrote it down like, oh, I need to check these guys out, and I just never got to it, but I knew the name. Interesting. Yeah. yeah and if you would have seen it on MySpace, you would have probably been seeing photos from Chattanooga, or, ironically, Auburn. Well, I would, would just go by where the band, the where the act was based. No, but I'm saying if you saw the photos and were like, this looks like a bigger band, because hmm. if we had had photos... Um, of our shows in Athens, there would have been no audience in the photos, probably. Okay. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. It's like, we'd have a few people that were fans here, but if you had a photo in from Chattanooga, you would see arms raised and people, you know, trying to get to the band and stuff. Now, so, Critical Darlings, what was your first release uh, with Critical Darlings? Your first, as far as, like, EP or LP, what would that be? Um, the original band was a power trio with me... My childhood friend Frank DeFreeze on bass who moved to Athens from South Carolina to play in it. Hmm. And Tom Davis on drums. And we really were kind of a prototypical kind of a power pop outfit. 
and we recorded an album called Come On, Accept Your Joy, pretty lo-fi, and I think it came out in October of 2005, and he left in October of 2005, Tom, drummer, and so we floundered a bit. We had some people filling in. We did some shows. We didn't miss any shows, but that kind of took the wind out of us, and we just didn't want to do it the same way, because for me, whenever somebody leaves that's important, I want to change the project. Which may not be the best idea. If if we're changing, we're going to change. And then we became more of a rock thing. We became a quartet. And then we did the Satisfactionista album, which you've heard. Uh, oh, yeah. Songs like Saturday, Rage On, all that stuff is way... I, I hate to describe my own stuff, but I think it's less prototypical, prototypical power pop than the early stuff than it is um, more classic rock-oriented kind of. And it certainly expanded outward where we just weren't playing and doing the live show. You know, we could get David Bowie's piano player to play on a song or the drive-by trucker's drummer, whatever we felt like. And so that album is a lot more open that way. It's very open and it's just very varied because that's the one I'm most familiar with. Good. And uh, just uh, the, just the, I was listening to it actually about an hour before we started talking. <laughs> and uh, I'm sure just, that was a coincidence. Uh Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> but but the, just the, the variety of styles, just even on t- from track to track, it all it all seems to work together. But something like Saturday is way different than something like Tonight Never Happened. And Tonight yeah, Never Happened has so. all the like Tonight Never Happened is a track that I was really focusing on just a little while ago because it has just so many different shifts to it, and I I really like that. Well, good. That was actually I'm 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 proud of that one because it's not what people would expect necessarily. Um, that's actually a Q sign song <clears throat> that I took into the Critical Darlings. But um, when when we did Satisfactionista, and now when you listen back to it, the album will make more sense when I tell you this. Three of the songs were supposed to be solo songs. Okay. An uncertain flight, first song. Tonight never happened, which is in the middle. And something unseen, which is the end. Now I wouldn't have guessed tonight never happened because that just the, the at least the recording on the album just sounds like such a band collaboration type song. Right, but it was more the Q sign collaboration okay. than than this one, and me just filling in the the gaps. Mm. And what, I'm trying to remember who played on each of them. An uncertain flight and something unseen both have Brad Morgan from Drive By Truckers. So that's what I'm saying. So they were solo. And Tonight Never Happened was the guy that played on the rest of the album that was a band. I wonder if he, Josh Couillard, maybe why it feels like a band more to you. I hope so. He did a great job on that. And another track, in fact, this is one I wanted to uh, play right now uh, that I really, really like is uh, Happy Here and Now. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's the rocker. That's just that's, a straight that's up, straight up Yeah, straight up, song. you know, let's rock. And I... I guess I respond to that even at my age now. <laughs> I good, always will. Good, I'm glad. I was I, paranoid I, I, with that song because when we first wrote it, we were coming from that power pop mold and trying to slide out where we didn't have any rules like that. And I mm-hmm. was trying to think, can I really do something that could come out in 1978 and be on some MOR between radio station between Foreigner and REO Speedwagon? Mm-hmm. And I said, screw it. I can do whatever I want. And, and just- that's kind of the heart of that song, I think, is that part of my childhood and youth where it's just like <clears throat> rock and roll and the one one last thing about this album that i wanted to mention now you just mentioned 1978 well what another thing i really like about it is the i guess the overall the 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 sound of it 
yeah. there's not a there's not a lot of compressor just knocking everything down. There's not big reverb anywhere. It's just it's very you can put it on your headphones, you can put it on a stereo, and it just sounds like, hey, those guys are playing in the next room. There's that's n- awesome. It's not that's, just that's like a wall of noise, I guess, for lack of a better term. That is the expertise of David Barbie. Okay. If you know David, he's got a huge career as a as a producer and engineer and as a musician. You know, he was in Sugar in the 90s even on bass. Mm. But we made some rules, which is if it sounds specifically like it came after 1978, we cannot use it. Okay. We, and it was specifically 1978. Coincidentally, I didn't mean to say that before, but think about if you were listening to Waiting for the Siren, which is kind of the disco-y song, mm-hmm. we were like, if a rock album in 1978 would have had something that was kind of disco-y. Mm-hmm. So we needed that, and we put the little synthetic string sounds, the Krumar sounds. That was 1978. Mm-hmm. That was us trying to put in some WKRP. Huh. Yeah, actually, I, I like that track a lot, too. When I first heard it, the way it, it comes out of the, the song previous to it, it sounded... Uh, I don't know if you'll like this comparison or not, is uh, I was thinking Rainbow Since You've Been Gone. <laughs> oh, I'm totally down with that. Okay. Russ I, Ballard for the win. Right, yeah, exactly. The Russ Ballard song. Uh, that That's what it, just the first thing that popped into my head, like, oh, this guy, this guy's familiar with his Russ Ballard kind of music. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> um, it wasn't quite New York Groove, but it... Um, <laughs> but we'll, we'll get there. All right, well, uh, I'm going to play one of the tracks now from Satisfactionista. Uh, it was one that we were just talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so this is Happy Here and Now from Chris McKay and the Critical Darlings. Your mother used to love I'm 
right, that was Happy Here and Now. Chris McKay and the Critical Darlings, and Chris McKay has joined me here, in case you're just joining us. Uh, Chris, you still with me? I think so. All right. Yeah, I was just, I was remembering the recording of Happy Here and Now when we're doubling the bass, the da 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 mm-hmm. And I'm a terrible piano player, and to play that, you have to cross your hands one over the other. So for some reason, I was just visually picturing how I had to do that when I didn't know what the hell I was doing. Yeah, I really like that track. I really like that track a lot. Uh, but it, now I want to talk about some of your more recent work, as in post-Critical Darlings. What are some of the projects you've had uh, or you've been a part of more recently? Um, I've been focusing more on what I want to do myself. Okay. Uh, I have no false illusions of going out and taking on the world, but I can do some things that my little base, as small as it may be, will appreciate and enjoy and for me, it's more about an artistic thing. You know, we talked about Tonight Never Happened. It's an odd song. Mm-hmm. Something Unseen is an odd song. And I was able to fill it then. Now I can do whatever the hell I want. Mm-hmm. I had a, I did have a band uh, a few years back called The Everyone. I saw that. That is musically the best band I was ever in and the best for me. Mm-hmm. It was the only time I was ever in a band where all four members were vital. And you couldn't switch anybody out. And unfortunately, we wound up losing one. And I had some health issues that... Uh, made things very difficult, so I couldn't keep up with it for a while. Um, but I'm coming back now as well as I can and recording on my own. And I did in that in that gray area for the first time. I was drawn into the evil world of tribute bands, <laughs> um, which I always said I'd never do. I never really did covers, but uh, Timmy Conley here. There's a thing called Wild Rumpus, which is a big Halloween thing. He does yeah. that, but he was doing a Bowie tribute. Okay. And I'm a massive Bowie freak. Mm-hmm. And he approached me and was like, you're one of the only people I think that could pull this off because there's so many different styles. And I was like, I can't handle that. Mm-hmm. I was like, how am I supposed to do Stevie Ray Vaughan, you know, Mick Ronson, Earl Slick, all Carlos Alomar? I'm not that good. I, I do originals. And he said he believed in me. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, if I screw it up, it's his fault. And I went out and did it. and It was great. And then some of the other band members were in a thing called Abbey Road Live. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask you about that next. And he left Abbey Road Live. He was the guy that was doing the job. And I refused that because I was like, the Beatles are even harder. You know, their their catalog is all over the place. And you can't jam a Beatles song. Not most of them. Um, you got to know your stuff. And if you feel like you butcher it, you'll feel like you're insulting the gods somehow. Oh, not only that. The yeah. audience will let you yes, know. Yes, yeah. Um, you don't. You can you can play a Stone song and be loose with it, right? Because that's but just you can't do style. Penny Lane and be loose with it. Mm-hmm. But they, I was lured in. I resisted as much as I could. But I grew up listening to those songs, and John Lennon was one of my all time influences. And I was like, you mean I get to go out and sing those songs and play them and get paid? <laughs> um, now, even though you were reluctant to do to do these these tributes. Did you find afterwards that it maybe pushed you into musical territory that you hadn't been in? It made me before? a hell of a lot better musician. Right. I guess that's that was that's a simpler way because of it was question. terrifying. Yeah, I didn't know what I was doing, and I, I and people think I'm exaggerating. I knew how to play my songs. I did not know how to jam. Mm-hmm. I never had to. I never cared for it. And Abbey Road Live or a Beatles tribute band, but they come from a, the Grateful Dead school. So they're also in a Grateful Dead band called Cosmic Charlie. That's that's so that's their two gigs, and they don't they don't seem like they would match up. No, <laughs> not at all. But 
but they do. And they would, they brought me in. They're like, we'll do Don't Let Me Down. That song is actually not that easy to play and sing. I cover that one myself. Well, then you know the doing that and singing it is complicated. But then they get through the three minutes of the song and they're like, now go. What? Song is over. Now go. And they brought in big crowds and I'm on stage for the first time with them and they expect me to be taking a lead. Um, so there are recordings of us doing Don't Let Me Down that were nearly 10 minutes long. So you would get the audience what they wanted, exactly what they wanted, and then they would go out from that. And that's fascinating. But it's terrifying if you're the guy that's in the center of it and don't know what they're, what you're doing, and they all do. <laughs> well, and as far as all your, request shows, but as far, and as far as your solo stuff, you said you, you wanted to do things that were more just you. Uh, I do know that yeah. you, you released uh, an EP was maybe about five, six, seven years ago called All Was It All Day Face? Oh, yeah. That was basically some of the songs that were left over from the Critical Darlings. And they wound up in a compilation. I incorporated all of those into the quote-unquote best of the Critical Darlings. Okay. Which is called, I think it's called Best Case Scenario. Um, but it all, I think those are five songs or four. I believe it's four. And the There's one four that, on there, and then there was one extra one. So those five wound up in the best of two, and that was a transitional thing. Yeah, the one um, that the first time I played drums, like a full kit with me playing it, was the best of what's around and best case scenario from those recordings. A best of what's around was the song I was just about to ask you. Uh, cool, about, because I listened to those earlier today as well, and uh, best of what's around. I liked all four, but that one really stripped, it just struck out to me that I really enjoyed that song. In fact, I was hoping awesome. to, I'm hoping to play it before I, before we yeah, shut this down. Really personal. And when you're listening to it, remember when you hear the drumming that that is literally the first song that I ever completely played a drum part. I'm not a drummer per mm -hmm. se. I can write the drum parts, but the guy that was, um, engineering and co-producing with me. His name's Kyle Spence. He tours with Kurt Vile now. Okay. Kurt Vile um, from my hometown. killer musician. Yeah. But when he's in town and I work with a musician, I work with him now. Mm -hmm. He did We Are the Sea also with me. But he was like, you need to get rid of the guy that you had. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. He can't do it. And he's like, you keep giving him ideas. You're sitting here showing him physically what to play. Why don't you just do it? Mm -hmm. I can't. That's why I have a drummer here. And he said, I'm a drummer. I'm a drummer with a reputation. Come back. We're going to record you doing it alone. And I promise you, I will not let a bad drum part leave my studio. Because it'll make me look bad. <laughs> well, yeah. And this is the drum track he got. And after it was like, son of a bitch. I actually sound <laughs> like I can play. So, And I played it. Again. It's, it's just bizarre to me. Again, pushing you into areas you never knew you had capabilities. Absolutely. Yeah. I was not expecting that, but... Uh, and that, by that point, I was trying to be receptive mm -hmm. to the thing with when somebody believes in you, trust them. Mm -hmm. They may know something you don't. Well, I guess we're getting to uh, getting to what you're doing right now in our sadly our COVID world. And uh, uh, yeah. your your mask. This is also personal to you. Uh, the song that you release and it's been getting some great press that I've seen. It's uh, weird. I know yeah. that uh, was an Athens paper picked it up, and then Savannah now. Which is incidentally, yeah. Hound Dog Radio is is based in Savannah these days, so cool. I was happy to see that. But uh, tell me about if you don't wear a mask. <laughs> the complete title of the song is <laughs> "If You Don't Wear a Mask, You're Showing What an Ass You Are." Uh huh. 
And I understand that it's a novelty. I understand that it is silly. It is out of my character. But my wife, again, we're in Georgia, so our government doesn't necessarily always look out for our best interest, and they required her to go back into the office, even though she'd been working from home and doing just fine, Mm -hmm. and in fact, more efficiently. They told her she had to go back. She went back. They can't require anyone to wear a mask. Most of the people have the good sense and basic decency to actually wear them anyway. This one person refused outrightly. And I have health, some health issues now, as I've said, that I'm still battling, so I'm a little bit more immunocompromised. And, of course, she comes home and tells me, and I was already irritated because I knew this was happening, and we didn't want her to have to go back anyway yet. And she came into the house and said that this was what's happening, and I was already aggravated, and I had my guitar on, and I said, well, how about this? And I literally played the beginning of it through the chorus like that. Just on the spot? On the spot. That's a weird thing. There's a lot of my songs lately that are just ad-libbed. I almost feel like I didn't write them, because I can just play them. Lyrics, music, everything. Done. Like, no work put into them at all. And that's what came out, and I said, well... Since I'm not following any rules, why don't I not do what I would do? I recorded one vocal take. The recording that you hear is the only time that song has ever been sung. No second takes. There's even a couple of bad notes. I had to repair the acoustic track once the drum track came in. But other than that, that's the first take. And I sent my vocal and acoustic to a few friends. The drummer that responded first was Andrew Hammer, who was in Abbey Road Live, and my band, The Everyone. The bass player for Cracker responded first, Ryan Howard. Jason Neesmith from Pylon Reenactment Society, he used to play with Richard Lloyd. He was Richard Lloyd's other guitarist from television that played on Marky Moon. Oh, man, so I love he would Marky play the, Moon. That oh, part. Oh, man. Yeah. Um, he's like, I'll play piano because I wanted a honky-tonk thing. Mm-hmm. And um, the guy that plays with Hank Jr. was going to play with it, but he was taking too long. So who else did we get? Then I was like, we can get a fiddle. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I knew a guy. He agreed. Pedal Steel. Who do we know? Let's hit up John Neff, who founding member of Drive-By Truckers, played with Jason Isbell. He's in Mike Mills' band with Mike Mills is playing mm-hmm. now. They all agreed to do it. And yeah. so within a few days, I had this track of these incredible musicians and then a lot of friends, including <laughs> some weird guy named Eric Jefferson contributed. <laughs> uh, True story. Yep. Yeah. Uh, with, with vocals and <laughs> other instruments. And... G. Robbie from L.A., who I hardly knew, even added an accordion. Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask you. There's even an accordion on there. (laughs) She threw that in because I was like, you can throw in the vocal. And, you know, I didn't know her that well. We knew each other through online media. But it turns out if you ever were watch Friends Mm -hmm. in the the 90s, uh, if you remember when Phoebe got married, Mm -hmm. she had somebody playing steel drums. Oh, yeah. uh, Playing classic rock. That was G. Oh, wow. That's that's interesting. It's weird. And then we also have in the video Lisa Mende, mm. who was the, you gotta see the baby from Seinfeld. Mm. <laughs> so we got a must-see TV lineup reunion on the song as well. That's amazing. Well, we're going to play Must- it right now. We're going to play, uh, this is pretty, pretty brand new, I'd say, from Chris McKay and the Masketeers. Oh, yeah. And uh, I, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm a Masketeer as well you on are. this one. This, was, this one's called, If You Don't Wear a Mask, You're Showing What an Ass You Are. Well, you know that you can be a racist And maybe no one will know And you can be a sexist and homophobe If you know how to not let 
it show Yeah, you can claim to be a Christian And you can claim to be pro-life But if you don't wear a mask, we know that you're a Radio. I'm talking to Chris McKay, and uh, that was his brand new one of his brand new songs called "If You Don't Wear a Mask." That's the clean version. You could find that on Bandcamp.com, and uh, pretty much is that on? Could you find that on iTunes and other services as well, Chris? I released the song quick enough that we still have to wait for all of those 
uh, outlets to catch up. So Bandcamp. Bandcamp's where it's at anyway. You can get yourself the version we just played, which is the quote-unquote clean version. You can get the, uh, the ex- let's say, uncensored version, if you dare. Uh, there's even an instrumental version if you want to sing along, which I yeah. thought was brilliant. <laughs> I thought that was necessary in this case for a ridiculous. Song. I was like, it would it would serve me right if all the music I've done for my entire life, this stupid song was the one that gets the most attention that I just threw out and didn't even put any thought into other than the immediate. Maybe years from now, when all this is thankfully behind us, it'll become kind of a retro thing for karaoke. Hey, remember the COVID days? That's interesting. Do you have that if if you don't wear a mask song? Let's sing it. Sing along. I would love for it to be a weird (laughs) memory of a formerly dark time that we've overcome. That we've overcome, exactly. Uh, But that's not the only newish music you you have going. I want to talk to you about another track uh, called We Are the Sea. Can you tell me some things about that? What's weird to me is that the song is a couple years old, but it's taking on its own life now, which okay. I'm very happy to see, but it's just strange to see how it's playing itself out and it's it's doing it itself. But I purposely, I don't ever calculate what I write, <clears throat> but then I do, because I did in this case. It was like, I need a simple chord progression. I chose that D walk down that most people use. Because I wanted the music to not be taken away from the lyric. And then I thought of the rest of the song like a child story, trying to tell the story of someone basically misleading their way into power, misusing it, and then the inevitable rise against this abuse and the recovery of, of the... The kingdom, the nation, whatever word you want, into their healing. Okay. Because they heal themselves ultimately as the sea washes everything clean again and things heal. And the video has started getting a lot of plays. And just this week I saw it connected to a Lincoln Project thing, which I think is amazing. Hmm. So it started getting like a couple thousand hits on Facebook, not even YouTube. On Facebook, which is Otter. And then people reaching out to me. And can we use it for this? Can we use it for that? Absolutely. Whatever you want. If it helps the cause Hmm. to make American lives safer again, make our lives more secure again, I don't care. Use the song, please. All right. Well, I think we can actually, we can play it right now. You sent me a... A version of it that I'd be happy to play. So we're going to play Oh, that. yeah, I sent you the video version, yeah. which is the preferred edit, I think. Because the song gets really weird on the full length, which is over 11 minutes long, and it gets really disorienting. So I gave you the semi-disorienting okay. mix. Well, I'm semi-disoriented most times anyway, so that works out. Awesome. Yeah. All right, this is uh, We Are the Sea from Chris McKay.
Hound Dog Radio. This is Eric Jefferson. I'm talking to Chris McKay, who's been joining me this hour. I want to thank you, Chris. For, uh, Thank you for having me. Yeah, and we've enjoyed the songs. Uh, but I wanted to ask you, we touched on it earlier in our conversation. In addition to your your musical career, you're also a world-class photographer. And that's kind of, <laughs> I knew you have that at least on your website as your quote-unquote day job. But that's, yep. that's maybe the coolest day job of anybody I've ever heard. Uh, when it's good, it's good. It was way more difficult than people realize, I promise you, because there are a lot of people that think, you're just going to take pictures. Right. Oh, it's a hell of a lot I know, but that. it's it's nowhere near that simple. Oh, God, no. Yeah. I mean, even just ma- get dealing with managers and agents and credentials and publicists and liaisons, and uh, that's maddening alone, much less than you're dealing with rights issues and contracts, and uh, it's 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 nuts. But as I said, when it's good, it's good. And when you're at this point, because, you know, I can't shoot anymore. There's nothing happening. Right. So, but I do have this archive now of nearly 20 years of stuff that's that's being still run worldwide. Um, the royalties are left less per month, but they're still there. And there's still a chance at any month that somebody may put a, a giant billboard up in Bulgaria <laughs> with one of my images uh, since they're syndicated. And I get a nice little check. So that's with, if without that, I don't know how we would have survived. Period. Mm-hmm. Now, is photography something that was always a passion in addition to music, or is it something that you just kind of found by accident and then realized, wow, music, I really enjoy this? Music is the thing. Music. Yeah. Everything that I ever done in life has been connected to music and photography. You notice I'm a music photographer. Well, yeah. <laughs> um, when I was a kid, I started going to shows. When I was barely 12, and I took a Polaroid, and it was it was Loverboy opening for Journey on the Escape Tour, and I went into the pit, because things were so slack, security-wise. My stepfather took us and was like, hey, can, can my tiny little stepson, and I was a tiny guy, come in? And they was like, oh, how sweet, how cute, and lets me right into the pit at my first show. And I went up and tried to take photos, and Steve Perry saw this stupid little kid and started, like, laughing and pointing, and then he started running. He started running? So I would chase him, because hmm. he thought it was amusing, and I did that a few times. I don't have... The only photo I have is a, of something that looks like blue jeans floating in the air that are blurry from that show. <laughs> but even, again, for my first show of the thousands I went to, I was in the damn pit. That's amazing. I love that. Um, and then I was doing it illegally, and I think it was in 83 when they started saying, no cameras allowed, mm-hmm. and I would still do it anyway. I got my film taken from me in 1990 by Robert Plant's manager. I saw you post something about that recently. Yeah, I, I'm a huge Zeppelin guy, and I waited till the end of the night, and I was standing there, and I knew how the Zeppelin legend about photos and right. things, but I was like, he's right there in front of me. He sees me. I'm a few feet away from him, and he started posing for me. Hmm. He literally started posing. He knew what he was doing. He was luring me in. And oh, I started, I was like, screw this. He saw the camera on me, but I wasn't taking anything. I started taking them. I'm not going to miss this chance. And he was posing, doing all of his plant stuff. Mm-hmm. And then he looked at me and stopped for a second. And he was doing the song, Wearing and Tearing. And he wagged his finger at me oh. and smiled very slowly. And then he pointed down to his guy and then pointed at me and then started laughing. And, of course, the guy came and took my film and just ripped the film out and threw it on the floor. 
And that was the end of that. Oh, boy. Yeah. So it was, but, it was dangled know, in front of you and then taken away. Yes, and then it got to the point where uh, when I became official, it was 2000, basically, and concerts had gotten prohibitively expensive mm-hmm. for anyone. And I'd like to go to shows, and I'd like to go to a lot of shows. Uh, I couldn't afford that anymore. You know, when the Stones blew the barrier in forty in '94, fifty dollars was a lot. But we got fifty dollars to see the Stones from the fourth row in Columbia. That was like okay, that's the edge. After that, it was like a hundred and hundred and fifty. And I started thinking over the years, what can I do? I was like, I wonder if I could become a writer. And Flagpole Magazine in Athens, it's just a local rag, you know, it's right. like free time. I know Flagpole. Yeah, and I, I, one day I measured up my courage, and I went down to talk to their music editor, and I said, you guys really don't cover the shows that I'm interested in. I like big shows. They were more uh, alternative. And I said, would you mind if I go cover some shows and wrote a review? And Ballard Lieseman was the guy there. And he just kind of looked at me and said, have you ever written before? Nope. You go to school for it? Nope. Yeah. Um, well, why do you want to do it? And I was like, I I would just like to try if I could. Incidentally, I saw the Stones 94 tour in Philadelphia, and uh, I have a camera-related story of my own for that. Uh, ah. I've just at best, I've been an amateur photographer. At best. Uh, but <laughs> that was back in the days with, of film cameras, of course, and... Uh, smuggling them in to shows because yeah. uh so uh my friend and i went and i i, <laughs> I had a i had a pentax camera and i put it down my pants and we climbed we got onto the field at veteran stadium you know, it was the football wow. and baseball field back in those days that's where the stones were playing and uh, my friend hopped the rail at just the right time my camera being where it was slowed me down just enough that security saw me so I got chased all around the field of Veteran Stadium, and I hopped over another rail. And long story short, he wound up about where you where you were, about fourth or fifth row. And uh, I found a place up in the the first level, and I took some pictures that I still have to this day. That's but uh, yeah, that's so that's my Stones '94 story. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, how could you not? Did you see those spectacles? I don't understand how people wouldn't want to take some photos. You don't need to be like a cell phone. I like where you, it's on all the time, but yeah. anyway, I like capturing things. Uh, can you give me just uh, one or two stories, just off the top of your head, of uh, in case in case folks are just joining us? Not only is Chris a uh, just tremendous musician, he's also a photographer who's who specializes in concert photography, and right. I can't even count how many shows that he's shot over the years. He has a uh, just just this incredible portfolio of photos. Uh, so, but is there anything that stands out of you as like, this is one of the craziest things that ever happened to me as a photographer? <sighs> There's, yeah, that's hard to even know where to begin with that stuff. I mean, I was standing backstage one day and some art, not, not backstage, like out beside the stage being ready to shoot. And somebody grabs me and was like, we need to get a photo with Ringo. What? That's great. What? And, and, and they take me back and all of a sudden I'm talking to Ringo Starr. And telling him where to move. I was like, there's doors behind you. They're distracting. And Ringo looked at me and just says, what? You don't like doors? Doors <laughs> are arty. Oh, wow. Which is totally Ringo. Yeah. And then he did his thing and it was over. And he's walking out on the stage straight to it. Don't come easy. 
And, you know, all these times it's like, I'm standing on stage now with Robert Plant while he's singing Black Dog. Hmm. Um, if I'm thinking of one story, though, the one thing that still freaks me out isn't even about somebody that's some that's a personal idol. It's I was the house photographer for the BET Hip Hop Awards for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And security is pretty tight at these events, as you might imagine. Yeah. But for some reason, the person ahead of BET wasn't available and they had a fill-in person. And this person decided to accidentally make my life hell by telling me, I need you here and I need you half a mile away at the same time. And I've got a headset. Go there. Go there. I can't be in both places. And finally, I was told, they're coming in. Get some photos from the limos. Fine. I'm doing portraits, I think at this time, with Wiz Khalifa. And then I get like urgent messages. You have to be back at the red carpet. We need you there now. And I'm like, screw this. I'm going to talk to somebody. And I went back to the red carpet. And this person, we have to have you here. How could you be over there? I was only there because you told me to be, but you hired me because you trust me. You know my history. You know what I do. You need to let me do my job the way I do it. And I was just looking at her and I heard somebody coming up behind me. There was a lot of people, you know, that had come through on the red carpet already. And I just put my hand in a stop motion and I kept speaking to her and I said, I'm doing what I need to do and you need to leave me the hell alone. And she kind of humped and walked away. And then I looked where my hand was on somebody's chest and it was 50 cent. Oh, (laughs) and I had blocked him in his path. Hmm. And I took my hand down and he gave me that terrifying look that I'm sure you've seen where he just looked cold and scary. And there were all these photographers behind the rope line and all these other celebrities in the distance and everybody's kind of looking. And I was like, if I show fear, I'm dead. (laughs) And I said, you, to him and pointed to him, I need you over here. You don't talk to anybody before me. I get the shots and then you do whatever the hell you need to do. Cool? And he didn't move. No. And he kept staring. And then he just started laughing. Hmm. He's like, I, I, I don't want to piss you off. We're good. I don't want to mess with you, man. Hmm. And we got the photos. And then he started like photo bombing all my other stuff. Like he jumped, I was doing some mm-hmm. stuff with French Montana and some other people, and he jumps in 50 cent, like making big goofy faces, because now he likes me. Yeah, I was going to say, now you're accepted. He, he He's decided yeah. you're all right. Absolutely. And he was giving me all this stuff, and the other photographers were like, can't we get that shot? He's like, sure, but he's not doing it for you. He's jumping in between me and you, and I can't help where he's doing it. But I got all these exclusives, and it was great. But then the next day... It turns out there were shots fired oh. behind the venue between French Montana's people and 50 Cent's people. So then my photos were like worldwide. Um, but yeah, no, that moment of fear with, oh my God, I could die now hmm. is one wow. that jumps into my head immediately. Yeah, I could see why. Well, now, Yes, if, I remember his face vividly. Now, folks wanted to check out some of your, some of your work. What's the best way to do that? Um... <laughs> there's no truly easy way because okay. they're in different outlets. I would recommend quotation marks on Google, Chris McKay in quotes and Getty. Okay. G E T T Y. You'll see thousands of stuff over the years and there's other 
outlets, but that's the main one where you'll see the most, I think. Okay. I myself. So sorry for that being complicated, no, but there's just right. a lot. I've actually, I in fact, I'm just looking right at it. The room that I'm sitting in now, I purchased one of your one of your shots myself, Lindsey Buckingham, 2006. Oh, awesome! For our I Variety love Playhouse. I was at that show, and I remember seeing you. You actually posted that photo, and I thought, well, damn, I was there. I was at that show, and that was his first show. In, since what, 92? Right. Was a solo show? And, yeah. uh, so I thought, okay, well, that one's kind of personal and it's a terrific shot. And I thought, oh, what the hey, I'm just gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna I snag a copy I'm glad of this. That shot worked because I wanted a shot from that night for so long, but it was so dark. And that was his first song, his first night. Right? Wasn't that, uh, uh, what's the song called? Uh, was uh, it, what he, I remember he did Big Love, uh, he did the va- the vacation. Is it song, not holiday. too late? I think it's Maybe. not too late. Was the yeah, first. Song. I don't remember what his first song was that night, but I just I, not too late. Trouble and never going back again. I think were the three opening songs. I met him in the parking lot a- a- afterwards. Me and a, a awesome. bunch of other people. He said he said hello, and they said we got to go, and that's my Lindsey Beckingham meeting story. <laughs> well, we <laughs> it's we pretty engaging. A, our notebook on stage, and he signed it. That's that's as close as we get. <laughs> Uh, well, man, I want to thank you for this. Uh, I've enjoyed the conversation. I've enjoyed thank the you, music, Eric. and I'm, I'm sure everybody else out there has enjoyed it. I want to I want to take us out on one of your other songs that I just discovered today, and I uh, really dig it. Uh, I wanted to ask you if you could tell me a little bit more. I think we 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 talked about it briefly earlier in our discussion, but best of what's around. Tell me a little more about that. Yeah, that song came at that weird. Uh, juncture where you're leaving a long-term project, which was the Critical Darlings, and you don't know where you're going yet. Um, I had been going through a lot of personal losses. Uh, my father, my grandmother, who basically raised me, my father-in-law, and I was trying hard not to focus on what I had lost. And I just wanted to focus on what's around. And what's what's the hook in the song? Gotta make the best of what's around. Mm-hmm. Um, started from there, went backwards. Doesn't matter how I feel as long as I get through the day. And that's the line that, that was all I needed. Once that line came, the rest of the song was done. Um, just surviving, getting through, focus on what's there, what's left, and what's to come. All right. Well, I want to thank you again, my friend. Uh, I've really enjoyed our discussion. Uh, check out Chris McKay. Both music and photography, you will not be disappointed either way. <laughs> Trust me. Uh, you can find Chris's stuff on Bandcamp, the music stuff. You can also find a lot of it on iTunes, Spotify, Amazon, mm-hmm. wherever you, or, you know, if you get good old fashioned hard copies, I'm sure you could, that could be had too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's a few. Yeah. And, uh, I, I heartily recommend it. I'm personally a big fan of his album Satisfactionista. So pick that one up if you want to have some music that doesn't suck. That would be a good thing to have. Uh, Chris, my friend, thanks again. Uh, we're gonna, thanks, Eric. We're going to go out on this one. Best of what's around. Chris McKay. Chris McKay.